Hey, Melissa Job here, and I am so excited to tell you that Intimate Fame is now a part of Apollo Plus, the creator-owned platform where every subscriber helps audio fiction creators just like us. When you subscribe to Apollo Plus, you can listen ad-free, you get early access to episodes, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes supercuts, and so much more. But best of all, your support benefits us and our fellow creators with a 70% revenue share, so we can keep on creating all the audio content that you love. Join Apollo Plus now through the Apollo Podcasts app or by going to apollopods.com. Welcome to Intimate Fame. Conversations with the famous and infamous like you have never heard. Success, love, history alive, history undressed, private lives intimately revealed. What if you were there? Now you are invited. Meet extraordinary people as you never have before. One person stories like no conversation you have ever been part of. Tonight, The Last Sitting, Marilyn Monroe, Episode 5. June 1962, Los Angeles, California. Marilyn Monroe arrived at the Hotel Bel Air. She was alone, five hours late. She had agreed to a photo sitting for Vogue magazine with the famous photographer, Bert Stern. Marilyn never granted photo sittings, but even she knew her career needed the publicity. 2,571 photographs were taken. The photographs would be the final glimpse into the life of the Hollywood icon. Six weeks after the photo sitting, Marilyn Monroe, the original American goddess, would be dead. Champagne! Keep up with me, Bert. Or do I need to keep up with you? Marilyn has lost track. Not tired, though. Thank you very much. You tired, Bert? No. Not tired, thanks to your little tin box. What do you think, Bert? Rattle, rattle. Foot on the gas pedal, Bert? <laughs> I thought so. I got locked up in a nut house. Not much was going my way, movie-wise, man-wise. Given my family, there was a good chance I was heir apparent to some serious craziness. I locked myself up, not on purpose. They mentioned a retreat, time to rest, reflect. A retreat sounds nice, right? I'm thinking, well, something like this. The Hotel Bel Air. This is a very nice retreat. My retreat was the seventh floor of an insane asylum. It happened quick, in a car being driven, and ended up in a padded cell. If I wasn't nuts before, I was then. Screaming, hands bleeding from banging on the door. My entire life I have been terrified by locked doors. Even my bedrooms, never a possible way to lock them. This nut house, locks everywhere. Everything taken from me. Threatened with a straitjacket. They asked, why are you so unhappy? I told them. I've been paying the best doctors of fortune to find out why I am so unhappy. And you're asking me? Joe was my knight in shining armor. Joe was my hero. We hadn't spoken much in almost six years. But when I could make a call, I knew it had to be Joe. 
Joe called the doctors, told them who he was, would be there the next day, and tear down the goddamn fucking hospital brick by fucking brick if they didn't let me leave with him. Joe probably didn't say, goddamn fucking hospital brick by fucking brick. Probably just, damn hospital. But I imagined, for me, Joe cursing dramatically. <laughs> Driving me home, Joe said he had been seeing a shrink for some time, and he thanked me. I'm pretty sure telling him to go see a shrink was one of the last things I was screaming at him when we broke up. He told me if he was me, he would have left him as well. That's a lot for a guy to say. That just maybe it wasn't always the girl being crazy. Maybe the girl had an opinion about the situation as well. Yeah, it was a lot for a guy to say, especially in Italian. You stopped shooting. You gonna shoot me? Probably not what Vogue wants, right? Go ahead, shoot me. We made enough fucking demands in that agreement we never read. You should take pictures when you want to take pictures. It's better to be unhappy alone than be unhappy with someone so far. Joe DiMaggio was 37 when Marilyn met him. She was 25. I had just become one of the world's most famous movie stars in the world. Joe had just retired. So much of the same in our life that we didn't know. Tough childhoods. Good looks enough. Nervous around people, especially of the opposite sex. We both quit high school in 10th grade. We both took our work seriously. Both stood up against the Mr. Big Shots. Cautious about people exploiting our fame. Joe was suspicious to a fault. I was naive to a fault. By 22, famous. Worshipped and wanted by everyone. We met because Joe saw a photo of me dressed in a sexy, short-skirted baseball outfit, about to take a swing at a ball. Based on the photograph, he assumed Marilyn liked to play baseball. A buddy told him who I was. He didn't care about my career. He liked that I apparently knew how to hold a bat. Movie making rubbed Joe the wrong way. I wasn't bothered he didn't know me. I knew zip about baseball. When Joe took me to my first game, I asked, When was intermission? First time we met was an Italian restaurant on Sunset Boulevard. I was two hours late. I liked him straight away. For starters, he was still at the restaurant. I expected a flashy New York sports type. Instead, I met this reserved guy who didn't make a pass at me right away. I had dinner with him almost every night for two weeks. I showed up on time. He liked to tell me what to do. Not in a bad way. Not at first. You know, watch out for all the Hollywood types. Make all that I could and save all that I could. People will try and take it all from you. I knew what he was saying was important. All I kept thinking was, what's important is his body. Joe was a they-should-be-seen-and-not-heard type of guy. About women. Probably more his upbringing than Joe himself. 
He thought women should be humble and restrained. I was neither. Joe asked me to give up movie making. He wanted me to be the beautiful former actress, like he was the great former player. We were to ride off into the sunset together. We were married at San Francisco City Hall. He gave his legal name and wrote down he was 39, which was correct. I gave my legal name and wrote down I was 25, which was not correct. I said the love, honor, and cherish, left out the obey bit. Joe had some family there. I had no one. In the car leaving, the flowers I carried had already withered. I asked Joe, if I die before you, will you place flowers at my grave every week? Just as William Powell did at the grave of his beloved Jean Harlow. Joe promised he would. We're dry, Bert. A new bottle. I bet you thought buying several cases was extravagant. But in truth, it was foresight. <laughs> when I got back to Hollywood from the honeymoon, I had drinks with a friend. I told her, Do you know who Marilyn Monroe is going to marry? She says, Mary, what are you talking about? And I say, Marilyn is going to marry Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller, she shouts. You just got home from a honeymoon with Joe DiMaggio. You told me how wonderful Joe was, how happy he made you, what a great time you had. Now you're telling me you're going to marry Arthur Miller? I don't understand. I say to her, you wait. You'll see. <laughs> One night, I gave Joe a little... I love you, gift. A gold medal for his watch chain. I had engraved on it a quote from The Little Prince. It was engraved, True love is visible not to the eyes, but to the heart, for eyes may be deceived. Joe looked at it, this long silence, then turned to me and said, What the hell does that mean? He didn't like the women I played. He thought they were sluts. Our marriage was a sort of crazy, difficult friendship with sexual privileges. Later, I learned that's exactly what a lot of marriages are. The thing that was going to bring it all down. The one thing that was far more than all of the other stuff. Joe didn't like people looking at me. If I knew one thing about my life, Marilyn's life was all about people looking at me. I couldn't settle for Joe, not even with him being an all-American hero. When I married him, I wasn't sure of why I married him. He wasn't there. I mean, you could touch him, but he wasn't there. Out of film, Shutterbug. Dating Arthur did not mean Joe was out of the picture. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Paints me in a bad light. I was getting a lot of input. Trust your instincts. Live your feelings. That may have been good advice for my acting, but not for my life. Trouble was, I couldn't keep it straight. The past husband and future husband. The acting and life. 
Not long after marrying Arthur, I found Arthur's notebook. For a writer who couldn't write, he actually had been writing quite a bit, writing about second thoughts on our marriage. He wrote that he found Marilyn unstable, that I was a dejected child woman, that my emotional demands would smother him. It was something about how disappointed Arthur was in me, how he thought I was some kind of angel. Now he guessed he was wrong, that his first wife had let him down. I had done something worse. We were in England. I was filming The Prince and the Showgirl with Laurence Olivier. Olivier was beginning to think I was a troublesome bitch. And Arthur said he no longer had a decent answer to that one. I think Arthur really liked dumb blondes. He never had one before me. Arthur looked on me strictly as an ideal. He was shocked to discover that Marilyn was a human being. I was never a wife. It was fake. Another illusion. I was always just a delightful companion. Jimmy said we got along real well as long as I was dependent on him. I was never going to be dependent on a man. I always knew the only person I would ever be dependent on was Marilyn Monroe. Divorcing Jimmy took five minutes in court. Jimmy was a gentleman. He gave me my freedom and his 1935 Ford. We never saw each other again. Never spoke again. Jimmy was a good man. But you can't build a home if you never had a home to start with. I would not take the bait from the press. I didn't know at the time why I wouldn't talk about it, and I never did. I married and was divorced. That was the only thing I ever said about the man who showed me the give and take of dancing. Divorcing Joe The morning Joe left the house, it looked like something the studios had set up to film. The cameras caught it all. Joe yelling something about heading for San Francisco. It's my home and always has been. I'll never come back here. Like the movies, it wasn't true. Joe stayed in town for six weeks, hiding out in the Hollywood Hills. Never even made it to Burbank, let alone San Francisco. I talked to him almost every night, more talk than ever in our marriage. Fame got in the way of everything. Divorcing Arthur. That was a fast trip to Mexico. It was suggested I do it on the day of Kennedy's inauguration because the press and the whole country would be looking at that, and we could slip away and return unnoticed. We crossed the border at El Paso and into Juarez. I pleaded incompatibility of character. That was that, and we were back in New York by Saturday evening. I was no longer Mrs. Arthur Miller. Do you want to know what star power really is? It's not the money or the movie deals. Or the fame. I wanted to go to the Copacabana. Frank Sinatra was singing. I was told we would never get in. Sold out for weeks. 
Never mind, I said. If you all want to hear Frank, follow me. We traveled like an army convoy to the Copacabana. I marched right through the door. Okay, the rear door. And into the kitchen, and I asked for Angelo. A wonderful man to know. And lucky for me, the manager. Next thing we knew, tables were added to the dance floor, right in front. Dead center. Our entrance stopped, Mr. Sinatra. Stopped right in the middle of a song. You have no idea how dead silent that room was. I wore all white. They put a spotlight on me. I glowed like an angel. An angel for Frank Sinatra. I gave Frank my best humble look and purred. Wrong door. Right place. Frank winked and on with the show. Star power, you see. I knew if there was anyone in the world that people in that room wanted to see that night more than Sinatra, it was Marilyn Monroe. I'm feeling like the night just got started. That's quite the little tin box you have there, Bert. Another toast, Bert. Never enough toasts. The truth is, I've never fooled anyone. I've let men sometimes fool themselves. The Strasburg family took me in. So very kind. An entire family of intimate strangers. Dinner at their house. Tempers and outbursts. Suicide was a popular subject. I knew they may have been teaching people how to act, but classes were nothing compared to the drama I learned in that house. Lee Strasberg was God. Everyone knew. No one questioned. All the actors were like converts to a new religion. They didn't understand anyone else's acting except their own. Everyone else was a pagan. It scared the hell out of me. Mr. Strasberg said I had to open up my consciousness. Boy. Did that sound like opening up a can of worms? I wasn't sure that was such a good idea. My consciousness seemed filled with a lot of disaster, poverty, and neglect. I didn't think people wanted to pay good money for that. Men who think that a woman's past love affairs lessen her love for them are usually stupid and weak. Why not? It's not like either of us have plans to go out on the town. No twisting your arm, Bert. The times I married. The times of love affairs. In my mind, those were the times I could get away from Marilyn Monroe. And every time I found myself back doing the same thing, and I just couldn't take it, I had to get out. I just couldn't face having to do another scene with Marilyn Monroe. I knew I was capable of more. And Marilyn Monroe was changing. I've tried to do a little better. I find myself doing an imitation of myself. I want to do something different. So what's left, Bert? Enough of the scarves. What's left, Bert? Naked truth. For the camera? Naked truth. For Vogue? Not for Eunice, though. 
Nothing near the truth. Have you met Eunice? Eunice. 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 Fear is stupid. So are regrets. This is Scott Edward Smith, the creator of Intimate Fame. Thank you for listening and join us next time. The Last Sitting, Marilyn Monroe. Written by Scott Edward Smith. Performed by Rachel Ogilvie. Sound design and ritual music by Chesney Hawks. Associate producer, Melissa Job, Produced by Howard Gluss.